0: Joining us on the show today from serverbuilds.net is JDM. He's my go-to hardware guru. We also cover the new Raspberry Pi release, and I stage an
1: intervention for Chris's Raspberry Pi habit. I'm Alex. I'm Chris, and this is Self-Hosted 21. (laughs) Alex, have you ever had the perfect system end up being the machine you built yourself? There's no such thing as the perfect system, is there? It's just between upgrades. (laughs) I don't know. I kind of think... The workstation I have upstairs is one of those kind of perfect builds where I had kind of the confluence of the core series of CPUs were at a good maturity. Six cores was a good bang for the buck. It was a good price to get 32 gigs of RAM. Fast storage was was cheap enough that I could have multiple disks. I just love this box I built. I feel that way about this one
0: I'm talking to you via. It's an i7 8700K with a couple of NVMe storage drives and. All my actual storage is in the basement, but you know, I've got uh, an SSD for Windows and an SSD for Linux for pass-through and stuff like
1: that. It does everything I could ever dream of. It just it's just a champ. What's yours? Mine's my Linux box upstairs that I run Manjaro on with my three 27-inch screens. It's got an AMD 580 graphics card in it, Intel 6 core CPU, 64 gigs of RAM in this thing because I like to run lots of VMs, and I have multiple discs. I have a dedicated disk for my home, a dedicated disk for my root and a dedicated disk for my VMs and a dedicated disk for my Steam games and also my sync folders. That's the way to go, man. Uh, it's pretty great. Now, it's fun when you're building a desktop, but it like really matters when you're building a server. And that's why it's really great that we are joined by a very special guest today who helps the community figure these things out with his website serverbuilds.net. JDM, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Man, thanks for being here and for those that are not familiar with ServerBills.net,
2: can you give them like the elevator pitch on what the website is? Well, our website's a little stale at the moment, but the forums are really where it's happening, and uh, that's where the action is. Yeah, the forums and uh, the Discord. So we got almost uh, probably what I would say 10k users, like including Reddit, Discord, um, but it's a very community focused. Um, well, for lack of a better word, community. So, we, we, uh, I try to engage as much as possible, but anyone can write a guide and post it on the forum. And then, if it's good enough, like we'll help you edit it and, and it can become featured. But mostly I write guides on hardware getting used or enterprise off lease hardware. Um, sometimes it's not even used, sometimes it's brand new, it's just old stock. Um, but it's all very affordable and, I basically just try to make it easy if you're like used to building gaming PCs and whatnot and you want to build a server. um, It's just as easy as that.
1: Yeah, but you do help kind of um, give people an area to focus in. And some of these guides are pretty useful because I think, Alex, you've used one of them in the past to build your setup. I certainly have. So yes. Hi, JDM. Welcome to the show. Thanks.
0: I built, when I emigrated, a brand new server and uh, I built your anniversary Uh, I think it was 1.0 build at that point, Mm -hmm. which has a a pair of dual LGA 2011 Xeons, 128 gigabytes of RAM, 100 plus terabytes in the Rosewill LSV4500, I think, case. And uh, that was all about a couple of thousand dollars. Um, So, I mean, the bang for buck that you and your site enabled me to get was just astonishing, really. That power, you know, five years ago would have cost three four five times what it cost me uh, a year a year ago
2: the cpus that you have if you look at the retail price of them they could be in the two thousand to three thousand dollars each uh back when they were brand new but now you can get them on ebay for maybe a couple hundred bucks 150 dollars.
0: i think the magic sauce really that that you have there's a few tools that you you kind of share with the community there's a an absolutely awesome spreadsheet the cpu compendium spreadsheet that you have uh, which lists every single xeon in that era and compares the price to performance to tdp to you know everything that you're trying to think about when you're building one of these servers so stuff like idle power draw is obviously quite important for a 24 7 home-based box but then you know plex transcoding performance might be important for some people Or, you know, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that's in there that's just really great. And um, one of the things you actually helped me with, I don't know if you remember this, about six to eight months ago was uh, I was having some temperature issues in my build. And I was posting on the forums or I think it was Discord actually with, you know, all all the pictures and things like that. And it turned out that the fan configuration I had in my box, I just didn't even look. I just bought Noctua's just because that's what I've always done. And then you told me, no, Alex, you need high static pressure fans because of XYZ. I was all ready to buy a new case at this point, you know, Um, and I changed the fan configuration based on your advice and you saved me probably another few hundred dollars. So (laughs) thanks for that.
2: Oh, absolutely. And uh, we try to do a full service recommendation where um, if you're in that situation and you're like, okay, I've got the hardware, but I don't have these little tiny details fleshed out. Um, I try to do my best to pay attention to that and say like, okay, well, uh, if you're in a server chassis and you do need those high static pressure fans, um, here's not only the ones you should buy, but here's those, uh, those fans compared to what else is on the market and here's why they're a better value. You can get like, you know, for the ones that you got, they were, I don't know, five pack for 28 bucks or something like that. Yeah. They weren't even they weren't really even very expensive. So, right. And sometimes it's just about buying the correct hardware and it doesn't always have to be the most expensive. And especially for servers, I mean, why did you go that route? Uh like I know you came across it and all that, but what was so attractive to you about that versus going for something more modern? I like the idea. I had dual 10 gig on board as well as uh IPMI.
0: And Dual Xeon is obviously quite attractive from a Plex transcoding perspective. My use case was that I wanted to be able to run a couple of Kubernetes clusters at once, in addition to my normal server workloads, that is. I needed to be able to have at least 96 gigs of RAM, but I went for 128 in the end because I'm a baller and why not? (laughs) That board actually tops out at like 512 or 768. Yeah, it's kind of insane what you can get. And it just blew my mind. I mean, I, I kind of, because I was emigrating, I didn't really have a lot of time to you know dig into the minutia like like you and your team obviously do uh, and it was just really helpful to have all that information in one place and be able to say right if i buy this board i'm going to expect roughly this performance it's going to all work together and you're actually lining up vendors as well so i bought from i think the IT mart at that point
2: we've been trying our best to work with a lot of these vendors that do, um, either off lease, uh, servers or they just, um, they're like resellers or refurbishers. And there's a ton on eBay. Uh, but they're all very professional in the business of, uh, reselling server hardware. And you can get some really interesting stuff that the public just doesn't even know about. For example, like you said, there's a vendor that we do group buys with and, um, he had a few 6.4 terabyte NVMe drives they went for i think 600 dollars a piece on group buy and if you think about that for a second consumer Nvme vme drives your two terabyte brand new is maybe 270 bucks so if you're getting 6.4 terabytes for 600 and then the best part is that it has a 60 petabyte write uh, endurance. So that drive's never going to die. Oh, could you ping me next time that comes in- up? <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's that's the kind of thing that you would see in the Discord. and that I mean, maybe that was a little bit of a rare deal, but um, stuff like that does come up. We try to establish that relationship because these vendors, they don't know that there's communities out there for that. They're just selling to um, businesses and things like that, where if I can establish the link between the vendors and this large community that's still growing. I mean, it's growing at a fantastic rate that helps everyone.
0: I think what you do so nicely is you bridge the gap between Googling, I want to build my own server, and actually having a functional list of parts that all work together, which is just really nice at different price points as well and different performance points. So we've talked about the anniversary build. That's kind of like the uh, no compromises build almost. There's another one that you guys do called the NAS Killer. Tell us about that one
2: the home NAS is something that's becoming very, very popular. You can run a bunch of applications on it. You throw a bunch of hard drives in and you've got local storage that you can serve to your network. And it's nice to have because you don't have to rely on the cloud. You can have it local. It's fast. And overall, it's a great idea. However, companies like Synology or QNAP or, um, you know, WD, they have their own little NAS devices, but really they end up being very expensive for the hardware you get. And so the NAS killer was my vision of how you can build a NAS for the same price or cheaper and have the hardware be much more powerful. So I found some uh, early E3 Xeons and uh, you know, the pass mark was like 7,000 compared to uh, even the high end synology is only like 1900 pass mark. So you're getting four times the performance. Uh, You can build it yourself and then you have anywhere from eight to fifteen to thirty drive bays, just depending on what your setup's like. Um, but really, the nascular series has evolved, and currently we're on nascular Four. Nascular Five is in the works. Um, the hardware is getting newer and newer as time passes, and stuff starts to go again like off lease. So you start to see the the hardware, even though it's a little bit older, starts to come through, and prices start to drop a little bit more. But uh, yeah, the NAS killer is our most popular guide. And I think there's like 30,000 views or something just on the forum post alone. But yeah, it's just designed to be the all-in-one home NAS. You can run any software you want, but it's designed to give you that starting point. that are going to make me want to build one of those, but I can't figure out how to fit it in the RV. I could make that work for sure. Do you have any
0: advice for anyone who's looking to build a low power box that's going to be on 24 7 so i mean something that could form the basis of a self-hosted router for example you know running OpenSense or pf sense
2: something like that what's really interesting about computer hardware especially i would say within the past five to seven years performance hasn't increased a whole lot so like ipc instructions per clock yes it's improving but really where the improvements ha- have come about is through power usage if you look at the modern 1151 socket from intel for example um, intel's eighth and ninth gen cpus they're extremely power efficient for example the hp290 uh it's a it's a little like all-in-one consumer grade device but it idles at like seven watts and there's a there's a 54 watt tdp celeron in it and that's the tdp not the power usage but at idle It's only about seven watts. I use one for my PFSense and I think that box was only a hundred dollars on eBay shipped, but we just look for like little deals like that. And, um, it, it really just depends on what your needs are. But like you said, for a PFSense, it's not going to be super high. PFSense or for
0: home assistant or something like that, there's just going to be always on, you know, if you don't want to build a huge box like I did and run them all as VMs with pass through and stuff like that, it's a really good idea to consider one of these smaller lower power x86 based systems because you know legacy software is going to support it Um, and one of the issues with using the raspberry pi uh, for all of this type of stuff is that you have to hang everything off the usb bus number one Uh, and then number two um every arm cpu is different so there's no guarantee that Just because a vendor says they support ARM through, you know, a Docker container or something like that, there's no guarantee it's actually going to run on your setup. So, I mean, that could be
2: proved by the recent Raspberry Pi 4. And if you look at the software support for that compared to the 3 and any model below, it's totally different. The Pi 4
1: went through some more significant changes with the video that are for the better. Uh, and a couple of other areas with the bootloader, which has caused that lag. But the 2 to 3 series, and there was lots of iterations in between there, was, pr- was pretty successful. I look at it like this, Alex. It's early days still with the platform, and like any early adoption, there's a series of trade-offs, but also benefits. Um, like, for example, the USB bus. It is a limitation of the Raspberry Pi platform, but there are several small board computer platforms that now either have eMMC in addition to PCI or SATA even. And then, of course, with the Raspberry Pi 4, a guy like yourself, you really could do all of the storage over the gigabit Ethernet, which is now on its own dedicated connection. Um, You know, you could iSCSI everything, really. I might have bought a Raspberry Pi this week. I think you should try using the network as your primary storage location. I think that'd be an interesting experiment. It's in
0: England. So I bought one of those brand new 8 gigabyte Raspberry Pi 4s to use as a remote ZFS storage endpoint. I was going to ask if you got the 8 gig
1: one. Yeah, I did. I mean I I really don't need 8 gigs on a Pi, but why not? Why not have the headroom for future tasks? Yeah, um, because uh, you, that means in the future you could also throw something on there like sync thing. You have plenty of overhead for all kinds of additional applications that are just a container away. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad idea. And I would, I would also just say in my my hands on experience with, say the Pine sixty four Rock Pro sixty four, and the Pi four, I could run everything in, in every container on either. I didn't, I didn't run any particular compatibilities. The OS kind of abstracts that aspect. Once you have the core OS, uh, as long as it's a mainstream Linux, like Archbase or Debian base, you're pretty much good. Yeah, because you were
0: talking about Raspberry Pi OS for a little bit on LUP 357. And how they've, I mean, they've just renamed Raspberry to Raspberry Pi OS. Um, and talking
1: a little bit about why you don't really rate it versus, say, an Ubuntu. Well, that's a good question because I think the, for me, and it's something maybe I, I haven't made implicitly clear on this show is the transition for treating the Raspberry Pi a little more seriously came when Canonical announced that they were going to make it a first class Linux platform for them. Like it's actually got staff that are working to support future Raspberry Pis. And that, that resonated with me pretty strongly because the Raspberry Pi models tend to stick around for at least five years. You know, you can still <laughs> buy older Pis. And Ubuntu LTS is a professional-grade operating system. It might not be everyone's favorite, but it's a professional operating system that is designed to run in production environments. Raspbian, to me, or I'm sorry, Raspberry Pi OS, the are formerly known as Raspbian, I think is great. And I think it's really well-suited for new users of the platform. And I think it's really well-suited for people who want a lightweight desktop with a web browser. But for those of us that want to use it as a home server or like a backup server, even like in your case, Alex, which is a great use case. Uh, I think you need something on there that
2: is a little more production grade. And just to the point of uh, low power consumption, just keep in mind that with low power consumption generally comes low performance as well. Uh, and it may be relatively higher performance compared to uh, another model. But if you compare to, for example, a low power consumption Xeon that has eight core, 16 threads, Raspberry Pi is never gonna to touch it. Even though maybe the power consumption's let's say uh 50 watts at idle on the Xeon. Yes, it's it's more power for sure, but
0: how much more compute horsepower do you have? Here's a really interesting consideration though. So my sister is not a techie, in fact, she works in um pharmaceuticals. And when the Pi 4 8 Gig came out this weekend, I ordered one and sent it to her. She put it together, plugged in the USB hard drive in half an hour over a a Skype call. I can't imagine asking her to put together a remote Xeon system for me. I, I know that building computers is just like adult Lego, but... I've been doing it since I was 13. She's never even so much as, I mean, when her Mac breaks she goes to the Apple Store and takes it. Takes it there, you know, some it's someone else's problem. Yeah. So the Pi for, for me at least fulfills a really great need of being like a computer in a box that I can still mostly own every piece of, like I can choose the case, I can choose the bootloader and that kind of thing, uh without having to install a CPU or a power supply or something like that.
2: I totally agree and uh I think that it absolutely has a purpose, uh, and I'm not against a pie or anything like that, but you do have to consider that it's still not x86, so if there's applications that you want to run there, uh, you do run into that hard limitation.
1: I think that's very fair. You have to go into it with the acknowledgement that there's just not the level of software compatibility to both the point you guys have both made, and I have to agree with, and you are probably not going to get quite the right bang for your buck. I wonder, though, because I run three right now is what I have remaining, uh, Raspberry Pis that are currently running. And being, even when, even with the overhead of being inverted from DC power, um, I think all three of them are maybe drawing 30 watts. I'm not sure because it's mixed in with my router, my switch, and a Wi-Fi access point in there. But the, the draw is so substantially low that I can, you know, I can run them for days off the battery power. That's pretty great. Yeah. So Chris, you uh, your server seat, I think that's what we're going to dub it now. Mm-hmm.
0: JDM had potentially some ideas for what we could do to maybe replace, I don't know if we can replace the pie. Obviously, uh, you love yours, but yeah. maybe we could do something a bit different.
1: I'm open to the idea. I got to be honest. I think the Raspberry Pi would be a good like one year experiment right now. But I... I really wish, at the end of the day, all of this was virtualized. That everything was in a VM. So I'm trying to stage a Pi intervention here, JDM. Help me out.
2: So what has built-in KVM, a battery backup, and is x86 and low power? Do you know? A ghost. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a super NUC.
1: <laughs>
2: it's a laptop. Oh, very fair. Yeah, okay. All right. So... I have actually found great success using even low end consumer refurbished laptops for situations like yours, because a lot of times they have NVMe slots. So you can have one or two NVMe slots, even on like, let's say a $300 laptop, and maybe it has like an Intel Pentium Gold. uh, I believe the model is like the uh, G5405 or something like that. It's a two core, four thread. It's got Intel Quick Sync, So if you want to do plex transcoding, you can do 15 transcodes easily. It's got an x86 CPU. So you can run Linux. You can run Windows. You can run basically anything you want. Um, you can do 16, 32 gig of RAM. And it's got Ethernet, Wi-Fi, again, built-in battery backup. You can leave the lid closed, tuck it away somewhere on a shelf. That screams to me, laptop you know, I
1: didn't, uh, didn't expect this, uh, line. Uh, I gotta say that's pretty, int- did you have a specific
2: laptop in mind? Um, the ones that come on eBay that I've been eyeing and I, I've used personally, like right now at my home, I have an LTE network that's completely separate. It's a, I kind of jokingly call it a P land. It's a, it's a physical land. It's, it's not a VLAN. It's, it's totally separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Right now, I'm running that off of uh, Router OS on a uh, Lenovo. I'll have to look at the exact model number. Maybe you can put it in the show notes. But um, it's just a Lenovo. Like I said, it's got the Pentium Gold. And then it runs um, a USB LTE connection. And that is just for my smart home devices. So it's totally separate from my my regular uh, LAN. But you could do something similar where uh, if you want to run Docker and containerize everything on the laptop, um, you could do that.
1: Yeah, I was thinking the ThinkPad. Yeah, that's that and the, the other advantage is if I have to go into crash cart mode it has a built-in screen and keyboard.
2: Absolutely. And that has saved uh saved my butt quite a few times and especially in your situation, leave the lid closed, leave it plugged in and then you can actually run it off of a UPS or whatever battery you have and then you also have the laptop's internal battery. So The possibilities are endless and you obviously don't have to go that route. You could go for a NUC. Those are a little bit more expensive for the performance you get actually. Um, But again, you don't have the screen and, you know, KVM and all that. Right. I mean, it's hard to argue with they use
1: ThinkPad because, honestly, it's still going to be more powerful than the Raspberry Pi. And what I'm using these Pis for is going to work great on a, on a laptop if it's just a headless Linux with KVM. Um, Home Assistant, of course, Plex, obviously. Sync thing's a big deal for me. I have a very simple markdown viewer application that I like to use. Those things will be no problem. The one that's tricky, and I don't know exactly what to do with, is Shinobi. Because that's a lot of disk I.O., it's a lot of network I.O., and Shinobi is one of those applications that just wants to have the entire OS, which either means i got
2: to virtualize it or i got to put it on dedicated hardware. Could you give me a quick rundown of Shinobi and what the...
1: Yeah, it's basically just a closed-circuit self-hosted capture system for RTSP camera feeds. So I have a bunch of wise cameras that have a firmware on them that just lets me capture the video off them directly over the network. And this thing provides recording of those videos and playback and viewing kind of like a DVR system. And you can pull up all the feeds and look at them in a dashboard and cut out clips and segments. And it's great because sometimes I take my RV in wild places and I want to have surveillance when I'm not there or like right now it's in a shop and I want to check in on what's going on every now and then. I found that it, it basically keeps the box totally busy the entire time. I, I don't want to run two laptops.
2: Well, okay, that's fair. Um, have Are you aware of what QuickSync is?
1: Yeah, like Intel's built-in in, improved
2: H two sixty four encoding accelerator. Correct, and uh, it's it's seen huge generational improvements. So um, this is something that's been very popular on serverbuilds.net. We've been recommending QuickSync transcoding boxes for Plex, um, a 7th-gen Celeron 2-core can do 20 transcodes from 1080p to 1080p or 720p um, without a sweat. Did you just say 20? 20. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So that's a scale I just did not appreciate. That's including laptop CPUs. The biggest performance increase that we've seen with QuickSync and through my testing has been generational. So you go from 7th gen to 8th gen to ninth gen Intel, and currently we're on 10th gen, Um, You can get a 10th gen Intel QuickSync laptop for about 300 bucks off eBay, but it really doesn't really matter what the processor is. It's more about, again, the generation. There's some indication that faster processors are faster and do support more transcodes, but even the very baseline models support a ton. And you were talking about Shinobi. I'm not sure if that can leverage QuickSync. It might be able to, but I know that its competitor Blue Iris, which is a Windows-based application, can absolutely leverage QuickSync. And they just had a recent update where it almost completely removes the CPU usage entirely. I actually use QuickSync for Twitch streaming and recording. Um, So I have an i9-9900K in my desktop. But if I were to use NVENC, which is NVIDIA's encoding on the GPU, I would lose a little bit of performance and... There is some indication that it does mess with your frame times a little bit whereas uh, if i use the igpu which you do have to enable manually uh in your bios but um that, that igpu is not doing anything there's no monitors plugged into it or anything it's just sitting there idle so using it to encode like a twitch stream for example or a youtube video it works fantastically the quality is amazing uh, it sees about 0.6% CPU usage while it's doing it. Wow. That's pretty great. Hardware circuitry, huh? Yeah, that is really
1: great. And the other thing that's tricky for me along with this is heat because it is in this seat.
2: Um, my it's tricky for to keep my ambient temperature below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. I wouldn't worry about it too much with the laptop. Um, they can handle it. And, uh, like I said, QuickSync is very power efficient. It doesn't, really required too much of a cpu resource so for example if you were to run that original setup like we were talking about um, you could run docker on linux on the laptop and then if you were to run plex on it and you say okay well i want plex to leverage that cpu transcoding you can actually pass just the igpu through to plex uh, through the plex container and leverage it that way hmm. but if you were to do a separate uh, NVR build, like you said, with Shinobi, or um, I would prefer Blue Iris because I know it can leverage QuickSync very well. Uh, I would recommend a separate box.
1: And maybe I just keep a Pi doing that and then move everything else. The laptop idea is a good one. I'm, I'm trying to ride the Raspberry Pis out for a year just as like a self-education program. And I know that a lot of people out there in the community are trying to use Pis. So I just, I want to be well versed in them, and I definitely am now. <laughs> I'm definitely deep. Um, I'm like I'm like tribbles with uh, with the Raspberry Pis in the RV these days. But I I could see this probably. I don't know. I'd have to go look back when we started this, see where my year mark is. I could see switching to this. This is how it goes with JDM, Chris. He has
0: these little nuggets of ideas that kind of sprinkle into your brain. You go away for a couple of weeks, and you're like damn it, that's what I need to do. I need to buy an old ThinkPad now.
1: Well, and you know what's funny is for like a hot half a second, I think I glanced at an old laptop in the studio and I looked at that and I went, huh, I wonder if that'd work as a server. And then I thought,
2: nah, not a laptop. Especially if you could power it directly off DC if you got the voltage right. Absolutely, you can. They're most, mostly 19 volt DC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I bet I could make it work. The other thing that I want you to think about and I don't know, this, this is for me personally, this is the way I work. But uh, you said that you're using Pies because you like to play and you like to learn and that's something you're trying to learn. Um, for me, I don't like to play with things that I just want to play and work.
1: Yeah, there is that,
2: yeah. So if you can get your baseline set up where you've got your router virtualized and all of your services that you need to work, work on like, let's say the laptop setup we're talking about or something else, then you would actually have more freedom to play with the pies where uh, you don't necessarily have that back of your head saying, oh, well, if I mess this up, then I need to redo everything. Yeah. There's there's advantages to, like, I
1: don't want to be too critical of the pies because I'm impressed that the, the advantage to me diving into this and really using them is I truly am learning what they're capable of and not. And I have to say, they really have run pretty solidly. The biggest mistake I made early on was I used Raspbian and I had to rebuild a couple of things. But now I'm quite happy. In fact, having my storage on the USB bus hasn't really been an issue because I'm getting these Samsung T5 discs. They transfer at like 280 megabytes a second, which is as good as my Wi-Fi is going to do for the, Plex playback. So even the disk IO I've been fairly happy with. And then I'm going to also add in here, because of the cost, what I'm doing now on this trip I'm taking is I've brought a cold pie ready to go in a case all set up. And um, I have them installed in Velcro to the inner walls of the seat. So if one of these pies dies, I just grab the cold standby, literally ve- just pull the one Velcro in, pop the new one in. It has Velcro on it already. Cook some all. some Put all the same connections in and power it up. It's good to go. Oh, but cold pie is not as tasty. (laughs) It's true. But I do feel like I am constantly walking on eggshells. I will acknowledge that aspect of it. But that could also just be because it's such a new platform to me.
2: Right. But I I think that you would gain a lot more experience where um, you can sort of piecemeal implement things that you're testing with the pie if you have a good backbone. Yeah, I could be
1: riskier if it wasn't my production device. And that's the same reason
0: I ended up splitting out my PFSense. I mean, I used to run it on top of Proxmox with a a quad Intel gigabit NIC card in the main hypervisor in that anniversary build. I ended up building a separate PFSense box. Um, I've since switched it to OpenSense, but I ended up building a separate box because I didn't want my internet to go down every time I rebooted my server, (laughs) right? The uptime now is 115 days or something. But when it happens... Or what was happening with me with Proxmox was I was getting um, hard lockups, you know, kernel panics, basically. Um, And so every time that happened, I had to walk down to the basement and push the button because IPMI wasn't working or something. It was completely weird. And uh, I just ended up thinking, right, my internet needs to be separate from my server. That's just something that needs to happen.
2: Part of uh, building a home lab is identifying those key points of this needs to not fail. What do I need to do to make it perfectly reliable? And then on the other hand, uh, what kind of hardware do I want to play with where I have that freedom and the flexibility?
0: Yeah, a home lab, and this is a bugbear of uh, Morgan, actually, who was on the show a couple of episodes ago. He and I were talking the other day and he was like, a home lab is not just someone's server. Like a home lab is an actual thing with, you know, multiple switches and multiple servers and whatever. So, you know, the purists out there will be, probably cringing a little bit at my definition of a home lab as one box but hey home labs can be virtual too they don't have to be just physical it's true that is true um so i have a question for you jdm about you know your setup and you know how many terabytes you have and what does your home lab look like being a hardware guy i'm expecting some good stuff here
2: <laughs> yeah uh it's been an interesting process because uh we just recently moved to denver Um, And that was a uh, cross-country move for us. But as some of you may know, I do stream occasionally on Twitch. And um, in the past couple streams, I've been implementing a Storinator. So uh, that was kindly given to us by uh, a fellow um, server builds member who works at Backblaze. Um, And uh, I spent a little bit of time implementing that. And I've got 30 drives of... uh, Mixed eight and ten terabytes running Unraid on that box. I have to wipe the pool of drool from underneath my chin right now. A storinator. Ugh, that's the stuff of dreams. I just recently posted about it on Twitter, and and uh, it was nice to have Unraid retweet me. But um, it's it's been an interesting challenge to get that to work. Um, in the past, I've run pretty much all super micro servers, uh, a couple three U's, the sixteen bays, and then a forty five bay DAS, which is a direct attached storage. It's just basically a JBOD, uh, just a bunch of disks. And um, that connects to the main server. So uh, in the past, I've run that, and I've condensed down a little bit into the Storinator, where I can have 45 bays in for you. So are you running Unraid on that? Yes, I I run Unraid mostly. And uh, shout out to you guys for having the best Docker containers. I run uh, exclusively LSIO when possible. Oh, we have, we'll have to change that because I'm I'm not part of them anymore. <laughs> Are you officially not part of them?
1: I'm officially not. No. <laughs>
2: oh, okay. Well, I use them too, and I still think they're great. Thanks for any work that you did do on them because uh, they've been pretty great. Um, but aside from that, uh, yeah, I do run Unraid and, of course, you know Plex and all that. That's kind of where I got started. Was the Plex subreddit, and I was a mod there and helped out the team there for a while. I started doing a couple of hardware builds and split off into serverbuilds.net because we just really took over the Plex subreddit, uh, and I didn't really want to continue to do that. So
1: right, it's fascinating because it's a theory. I think we even we've probably said on the show a couple of times, but Alex and I talk about it off air all the time that a lot of this journey starts at Plex. And sometimes our audience kind of hates to hear that because we got a you know we got a pretty hardcore open source aficionados out there, and they they prefer we talk about other things. But I think you you really got to give Plex credit. It draws a lot of people into this space, and then it's it's kind of like the toe in the water that leads to bigger and bigger things. So JDM, I'm curious now that you've kind of got a fairly sophisticated setup, what do you find to be the most frustrating or troubling aspect of the setup? Like what's the thing that you have to constantly deal with or manually fix?
2: Luckily, not much because I, I choose my hardware in the, in a way that I don't need to do anything with it once it's implemented. And now I'm more geared at helping other people find hardware or I can start playing around with software because, uh, you know, everyone has their specialties. I love hardware. I love working with hardware. Um, but software is definitely one of my weaker points. So if I can start to gain experience with that, because I have that solid hardware base where I have the freedom to do do whatever I want, basically. Yeah, That is my goal really is just to start moving into more software, developing my own experience with that and re- relaying those experiences to other people. Uh, because everyone has their own way of doing things and uh, not to say my way is any better than anyone else's, but we both uh, you know, you guys and server builds, we, we have our own communities and I'm sure that, you know, there's a crossover there, but we do have our own ways of doing things. And um, if there's more information out there on how to do something, or if there's a gap in knowledge, uh, I'd like to try to fill that, you know, but as far as challenges go, I don't really have a whole lot um, right now. It's kind of, Uh, getting everything to where it is, what I would say, uh, like peak efficiency. So I'm trying to cut down power usage where I can, if it's downgrading a processor or moving to a different system. Dialing it in, in a sense. That's great. That's a great, I love that phase. And uh, unfortunately, I kind of live by the motto. It's like, oh, I have a spare part. It's not really a spare part. It's It's an unfinished build now. So now I have to do something with it. That could get expensive real fast. Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so back when we had Wendell on the show, I asked him how many terabytes he had. And I had this vision of like a Top Gear style leaderboard for guests as to how many terabytes they have. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I don't know if I've asked every guest, but I'm going to
1: ask you, how many terabytes do you have? Raw or formatted? Oh, hmm. you know, I don't think we've ever clarified. I guess, I mean, I think we should consider hmm, raw potential versus
0: available yes because wendell just dropped the petabyte bomb so i, th- I mean i don't think we're going to compete with that but maybe
2: i'm not quite there uh i do have multiple unraid setups so i do have the one in the Storinator. i have one that's in a 15 bay and i have another one that's i'm prepping for another 15 bay but i'm nearing half a petabyte wow okay
0: that's pretty cool where do you buy your drives from and what sort of things do you look for when you're buying hard drives
2: i exclusively buy wd shuckables and (laughs) me too (laughs) exclusively they're fantastic because they're really just hdst helium drives for the most part um with a little bit of uh firmware trickery but there's really not a whole lot to consider buy eight terabyte wds or higher so eights tens 12s 14s soon to be coming out 16s and uh they're the best value for the money and uh nothing can touch them right now
1: that's a great tip
2: Alex is a shucking fan and it's uh, his
1: favorite thing. So I don't think you could have had a more perfect answer for this show.
2: <laughs> yep, 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 yep. I love it. There's a couple different models. There's like the the elements, there's the um, easy stores, which are a Best Buy exclusive, but it doesn't matter. They're all the same drives inside. Um, the only thing that you have to consider, just like SAS hard drives, if anyone's familiar with SAS hard drives, they have a 3.3 volt standby there's a guide on our forum on how to surpass this issue. A lot of people use capped on tape to uh, just tape off the pins, but you can just simply remove this the correct state of wire and it'll function. Just cut
0: the wire. Yeah. Cut the green one. I don't know if it's green. Please don't cut the green wire.
2: Check which one you're cutting. <laughs> if you're using like a server backplane, like a super micro, they already have the three point three bolt standby like taken care of, so you don't even need to worry about it. Um but yeah, they're they're extremely versatile. They're they're even great in their own usb 3.0 enclosure for those raspberry pi guys that we won't talk about <coughs>
0: <laughs> all right well jdm thank you very much for joining us it's been a real pleasure to talk to you is there any way you'd like to send folks
2: um yeah you can check out serverbuilds.net. Uh, the, like i said in the intro the uh website's a little stale right now really everything's happening on the forums uh which is forums.serverbuilds.net and you're on twitter aren't you I'm on Twitter. I don't really do a whole lot on there. Um, Apart from give me grief about my TV stand. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, At JDM underscore what with three A's. You can also just hit me on Discord. Everyone bothers me on Discord. Uh, I think we've got about 8000 members in our server. So it's it's growing and it's uh, pretty large. We'll put a link to the Discord and the forums in the
1: show notes. And I think it's a great companion Discord to our own. Those are those are two Discords in a pod. Is that yeah. Was that a thing? Can we make that a thing?
2: Oh, absolutely. I I think we should do like a partnered uh, Discord something and maybe just crosslink or something like that. I love it. And you've given me a lot to think about. I think the laptop
1: is a serious route that I'm going to consider when the Pi experiment ends. And now it's just a matter of how soon does the grand experiment end? And can I find the right ThinkPad on eBay? I'm kind of hoping I can stretch it out long enough to get a great deal on a 10th gen to really
2: take advantage of QuickSync. Think about it this way. You don't need a ThinkPad because that is their sort of mid to upper tier laptop, right? You just need the hardware. The screen doesn't matter. Keyboard doesn't matter. Mouse doesn't matter. It's really just what CPU does it have. Does it have the NVMe slots that I need or hard drive slots? uh, How much RAM can it support? And that's about it. It makes a good point, Chris. Wise words, JDM. Maybe we'll have you back when uh, when I do make the switch. Oh, awesome. I would look forward to it. And just one other thing. There is... Uh, One guide that I do want you to check out, Chris, I wrote it about a year ago. It's called uh, how to create a mobile media server with Plex's new app for Windows. So it's right now. It's a Windows thing only, um, but it would be somewhat interesting to you particularly because what you can do is uh, just to give a TLDR, um, you can use Plex's new app, download media from any shared server onto the app, uh, like you're syncing it locally, and then also run Plex Media Server on that computer and then share that media out. Oh, sure. Sure. It's really easy and it's got a nice like UI. It's not an intended use for the app, but it does work. So check that one out. I just found it. I will. Thanks very much, JDM, for joining us. Thanks, guys, for having me. I hope I could I mean, I know we talked about a lot of different things, but the rabbit hole goes way deeper. We'll have to chat more. Well, I look forward to chatting on Discord, but I look forward to having you back on the show too.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.